Welcome to episode 17 of the Father and Son Watch Horror Movies podcast. We planned on being a monthly podcast, but we're just having too much fun. So we're recording as often as we can. We can't promise weekly, but we will try to do as many as we can. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings. I am joined always by my trusty co-host, Jackson, the son. And guys, I just wanted you to know that I love you listeners so much that instead of watching the new Creep Show this week like I had planned to, I watched a bunch of Romero Living Dead movies in a row for research. I'm sorry, wow. Shudder, but I've got priorities, you know? <laughs> well, you just spoiled it, man. I, what we're going to do, yeah. So we're, we are a spoiler podcast. We spoil the movies we discuss. And for the next several weeks, as Jackson said, as we gleefully amble into Halloween, we will be discussing the great late George A. Romero's Dead series, beginning, of course, with the 1968 black and white classic, Night of the Living Dead. This is the sound of a normal heart. Now, listen to that same heart subjected to a night of total terror. <laughs> night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Ah! Night of the Living Dead. A bizarre adventure in fear, an experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the Living Dead. A night of total terror. So, the first time I saw this movie in full was on Halloween night in 1984. I was 12 years old. I remember this distinctly. It was during the week. Halloween fell on, like, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday or something like that. And Elvira hosted MTV that night. Uh, she was the VJ, as we said back then. <laughs> Google that, youngins. Um, that's back when MTV played music. But on Halloween night, they had Elvira uh, curate the music videos and then host Night of the Living Dead. And it was awesome. And I remember I just seen maybe a month or two before, maybe a month before Psycho. And so seeing Psycho and Night of the Living Dead back and forth just was absolutely mind blowing. Do you remember the first time you saw Night of the Living Dead, Jackson? I do. Actually, um, this is kind of funny. I was in I was in driver's ed class. It was an off day. We weren't doing anything. We had, we had finished all of our stuff. So on my iPad on Amazon Prime, I watched Night of the Living Dead with headphones on. And even though I was in a well-lit room surrounded by screaming kids, that movie freaked me out. <laughs> I mean, I am usually not scared of black and white movies, Psycho and uh, Night of the Living Dead being the exception. Sometimes movies like, I don't know, The Beast with Five Fingers can creep me out a little bit, but... That's kind of creepy. Peter Laurie and that's kind of creepy. Sure, yeah. Well, this movie went against the mold of, of, of how I usually perceive 60s black and white movies. And this just totally shattered my world. And I was like, this is how movies should be made. The same way that people felt about Evil Dead. That's how I felt about Night of the Living Dead. This is how movies should be made. It's ingenuitive. It's inventive. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't get enough of it. Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk a lot about that because... George Romero was only 27 when he made mm -hmm. this film. It was his first film. He's from the Bronx. 
he migrated to Pittsburgh to attend college, Carnegie Mellon, but he dropped out at 20, began working in local television. And, you know, he, he lo and behold, you know, seven years later, he invents the modern zombie genre. You agree with that, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. the zombies before this are arguably racist and, you know, right. you know kind of voodoo, but he does, he, you know, he invents it. Now, he didn't call them zombies. He called them ghouls because he was big ghouls. Yeah, big <laughs> EC comic fan. But, you know, this is a guy who started his own production company at 23, called it Late in Image. And uh, he, I loved, um, I think it was a Birth of the Living Dead documentary. He said he worked on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That's one of the gigs he had. I heard shoot. that, and a lot of people from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood worked on this movie and the subsequent movies, which is kind oh, of funny. Yeah. But he, you know, he, he did this, and he, he said he made short films for the show. Whenever Mr. Rogers had to leave the studio and short some, you know, to shoot something, George Romero was the director. Awesome. <laughs> and, and, you know, he did one where Mr. Rogers gets a tonsillectomy, and I loved it. George Romero said, still one of the scariest movies I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So that surgery stuff is always more gruesome than a zombie. Oh, uh, and so his company did a lot of local commercials. Then one day he's just like, let's make a movie. And I said, what are we going to do? And he had just read Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, which is a great book. I used to, uh, once upon a time, I was an adjunct English professor, and I, I Am Legend was one of the required readings in my class. And uh, wonderful, wonderful book. Of course, it's been made into movies with Vincent Price and Charlton Heston, unfortunately with Will Smith. <laughs> but, you know, he kind of went from there. And he took I Am Legend, combined it with EC Comics that he loved as a kid, and combined it, and we'll talk more about this, with what he called the revolutionary spirit of the age of the 60s, and boom, you get Night of the Living Dead. And he saw the dead coming back to life as a form of revolution. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I mean, when you watch this the first time, you can maybe pick up on a few themes. There's not, like... That's not what's on your mind in the forefront, though. But when you rewatch this movie with a critical eye, you notice all these little, you know, this is very much a product of its time. And I think a lot of it was unintentional. Even Romero will admit that, that a lot of the themes that people point to, you know, race relations and all that kind of stuff, a lot of it was unintentional, though probably, you know, Dwayne Jones, who plays Ben, wanted this to be more in the forefront. But Romero was like, no, this is a fun you know, it's a fun zombie movie, but this is definitely a movie that you can learn from. This is this is fodder for plenty of students' uh, video analysis essays for college, I'm sure, because it's just mm-hmm. it, it. The script is so it's it's tight and it's so revolutionary for its time. I mean, like you were saying, I Am Legend. I mean, you look at those old movies as great as they are. Vincent Price and I Am Legend. It's a good movie, but like, it's very much. You know, you watch it and you're like, okay, this is a 50s movie or, or even early 60s. Right, I yeah. I think it was early 60s that Vincent Price did Last Man on Earth, I think it was called. And then yeah. Charlton Heston did Omega Man. Yeah. Right. So, but when you're watching Night of the Living Dead, though it is very much a product of its time, it's also timeless in a way because everyone can enjoy it. These characters are relatable on another level. I mean, there's only so much you can relate to Vincent Price because he's this British godlike figure, you know, theater actor with long monologues. So there's only so much you can relate to him. But then you have, you know, Dwayne Jones and even, you know, nobody likes Barbara in the movie. But even Judith, you know, <laughs> who I've seen Dead Meat, you know, meet at conventions, the people from Dead Meat. And she seems like such a sweetheart. Um, 
Greg Amortis actually interviewed her on Land of the Creeps, too. And, yeah, she's she's real sweet. And if you watch the 40th anniversary uh, documentary where they interview her, it's really interesting. We'll talk more about that because her character has been criticized a lot. And we'll we'll talk about that because she had some things to say about that. So I want to get to that. Mm-hmm. But here's my theory. And you tell me what you think. OK, so what kind of revolution? So Romero had said that if you watch Birth of the Living Dead, which is a decent documentary, um, and it's on Amazon Prime now, so you can you can go pick that up. But Romero said he'd seen the riots and the protests, and he said, but nothing seemed to change. And so my opinion that it was the dead going after the living for becoming so divisive and not appreciating the life that they have. Hmm. Okay, so think? It's, it's sort of like Jigsaw. <laughs> you don't appreciate life enough. So well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's almost like it's almost biblical in, in a way. And it's almost like instead of God wiping out the earth, it's the dead saying you don't deserve it. Sure. And I, I mean, they, the explanation they give in the movie is that a satellite put radiation on the earth and brought the dead back. Or that's one of the theories that the newscasters have. But yeah, I think this is very much the dead coming back is it's like this. It's like a plague. I think it's it draws back to the Black Plague in a way that um, it's it's like an it's almost like a flood, like that biblical flood, you know, coming down on the on the earth to wash it clean. Because we see, come later movies, um, that it sort of is, you know, wiping out the scum, and then the people that survive are the ones that want to survive, or at least some of them, as we see in Day of the Dead, you know, with the exception of the of the captain, you know, everybody else is pretty chill, and they're all, you know, nice people, but yeah, I think that this does have a lot of, this is a revolution, this is a revolutionary movie, it was, I think it was meant to stir the hearts and minds of the people that were watching it, to think, yeah, let's let's all get along, this is a movie about like the dangers of disagreeing with the people around you and fighting against the people around you when there's more pressing issues, you know, like the zombies are right outside and they're arguing over whether they should be in the top of the house or the bottom, you know what I mean? And the more pressing issue is the zombies that are trying to claw their way through the window. You know, either way, you need to band together because there's strength in numbers. And I think that's the whole point of the movie. Yeah, and it's it's also revolutionary though. Romero, going back to the satellite thing real quick, Romero actually says in Birth of the Living Dead that he doesn't want an explanation. So that almost may have been a red herring. He said, I don't, you know, he said, I didn't want an explanation for it. Uh, you know, the, the dead are rising and they're eating the living and that's enough. You know, he said, that's all right. I need. Um, but it's also revolutionary in that, especially for that day and age that, you know, like I said before, zombie movies before, if you go back and watch, I walked with a zombie or a white zombie or, or, you know, whatever um, you can argue by today's standards anyway, that they were racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but here race doesn't matter. You're right. Yep. There's the living and the dead. That, that's it. And now we're going to see some racial issues pop up, you know, next week when we cover the second entry mm-hmm. and possibly on the fourth entry as well. But, you know, in this, basically, as you said, it's, you know, it's the living and the dead. And so it is kind of, you know, like you said, band together or else, Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so that was uh, for that day and age. And, you know, that was absolutely revolutionary. We'll talk more about what, what Dwayne Jones had to say about that here in a minute. But let's go to the production. They uh, George Romero and his producer, um, 
uh, Russ Steiner, who plays Johnny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, we'll get to the fact that almost everybody in this movie who stars in this movie also had a second or third job. Everybody yeah, was I, like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Everybody that was behind the camera became a zombie in front of the camera eventually. Well, or that, or they were like, so you got like Harry and Helen in the basement. They were also the makeup artists. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and so everybody, and they said, well, we weren't makeup artists. We were driving to town, get bologna sandwiches to feed everybody, you know? So they were also like the PAs. Um, everybody was doing something to try to get it, you know, done. But they, you know, they rent this abandoned farmhouse and they find the cemetery and Romero chose them because they were in remote locations and Romero didn't want bystanders interrupting the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the biggest draw to it. And it was funny. Romero says, you know, the farmer who owned the house told Romero he was planning on tearing it down, demolishing it. And Romero responded, oh, we'll take care of that. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They definitely do. Exactly. Um, but the, a, lot, a large number of the cast and, and the crew um, lived in that farmhouse. Mm-hmm. And they had to renovate it to make it livable. There was no running water. They had to go to a creek to get water to flush the toilets. Oh, my gosh. It's very much an Evil Dead situation, like with that cabin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so they just, they all were just willing to do whatever. You know, the cop who orders the shot at the end of the movie, he was the uh, one of the primary investors. He owned a roller rink, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and he was the production designer. His brother owned a fireworks company, so he did the pyro and the squibs. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, co-screenwriter John Russo also played a zombie, and he agreed to be set on fire without any protection. He said, oh, I'll just stop, drop, and roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with now the codes and the unions that we have now, that kind of thing is a nightmare for attorneys. Oh, it wouldn't happen today. Mm-hmm. There's no way that would happen today, especially in a union shoot. It would just wouldn't happen. Yep. So these were all, I mean, the, they were all family, friends, and clients. And man, you want to talk about going the extra mile. One of the zombies owned, uh, you know, was a butcher. And he brought out real entrails mm-hmm. covered in Bosco chocolate syrup to look like blood. And they all agreed to just chomp on it. Yep. I, yeah. There's no way you could talk me into that. I saw a bit of trivia on IMDb about that where they're eating, you know, Helen and Harry. Or not Helen and or Were they the ones that blew up in the car? Or no, Harry, that they, was they, they Tom the the, Okay, yeah. Um, well... I, I saw a bit of trivia that when they were eating, you know, their, their roasted bodies, that it was actually roasted ham covered in chocolate sauce and that the people eating that, that uh, they didn't even they wouldn't even have to put makeup on them because they look so nauseous from eating it. They look pale and sick like they were dead because it was such a disgusting meal. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, no, I, this, this is very much a uh, let's get the shot, you know, at whatever cost kind of movie, because. Film costs money, even though we're shooting it in black and white. Still costs money, so we got to get this take right. Well, it's just, you know, they do this production. They get it together. They, and they never knew if they were going to finish it. They never knew if they'd have enough money to finish and all kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they, and you're talking about blowing up the truck. That was the same thing. The guys who did the fireworks, the brothers of the, you know, the guy who played the sheriff was like, ah, I can blow up a truck. <laughs> you know, never so, done it before, but you know, they said, yeah, we could do it, and, and they they pulled it off. And if you watch the 40th anniversary documentary, he's really proud of himself. He said, ah, "Anything they can do in Hollywood, I can do," um, <laughs> and he did. Um, but 
And then, you know, you get through that, they shoot the film, you know, in these sparse locations, um, and then they get it done. And, and before we end on production, I mean, everybody talks about Dwayne Jones, about how wonderful he was. Um, and to their credit, you know, the couple who play Harry and Helen Cooper, who are kind of his nemesis throughout the film, they became such good friends with him that, I mean, there's a picture of them like laying on the grass together and they're all like laying their heads on each other so they don't have to put their heads on the ground. <laughs> and, you know, they, they became really good buddies. And the guy who played, there was Carl Hardiman who played Harry Cooper. You know, when they asked him about Dwayne, he teared up. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't keep, he was, he was crying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, they all loved him. And of course he died an untimely death, you know, and going to Dwayne, so we're talking about him, um, it's, you know, it's interesting because here's a guy who Romero always said he didn't cast him because he's black. Right. The part wasn't written for, for any color. It was, it was just supposed a to be a trucker, truck driver. right? Yeah. It was yeah. supposed to be kind of a, uh, kind of a gruff, you know, truck driver. And they met Dwayne and, and Dwayne was, he was a, you know, theater trained actor. He taught acting, I think at Vassar college. I mean, he was an academic, you know, he was a, um, and he reads the script, he agrees to do it, but when he read it, he said, you're gonna have to change the script. And Romero's like, why? He goes, you've got a black man slapping a white woman. And he goes, well, right. you know, it's not, it wasn't written for a black man. He goes, well, he's black now. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> and he's like, you know, and Dwayne Jones is like, I don't want to be walking down the street, you know, and get jumped by a bunch of rednecks because they saw this movie and they recognized me, man. You know, and he's like, and George Romero said, I thought I was being cool, but go, no, man, it'll be fine. You know, no big deal. And Romero now regrets that. He was like, yeah, we probably should have addressed it. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that George Romero was telling the truth when he said, you know, it was just Dwayne was the best actor we knew. So that's why he was cast because John Landis and Eli Ross history of horse said, I don't believe George. <laughs> sure. I, I think originally he did cast him just because he was the best actor, but I think he, he did know in the back of his head subconsciously that this, you know, would be significant. The fact that he was a black actor and, um, but going back to the, um, you know, Dwayne, uh, Ben slapping Barbara, right. I actually, I actually root for Ben, honestly, in that scene, because Barbara is the most useless character. And it, like, that's one thing that I would say about this movie is that um, it kind of doesn't make any sense to me how useless Barbara is, because she's just kind of like a sack of potatoes. Like she does nothing but whine and sit there. Um, and that kind of bothers me. But then you get to movies like Day of the Dead and you're like, wow, these are actually strong, you know, female characters. The, the protagonist is, is the female character. So obviously it wasn't just Romero, you know, in his ide- ideology. I think Barbara is just, you know, a terrible person. And uh, that's what she was written as. Is she a terrible person? Or she just shell shocked. I don't know. I mean. Ben obviously he has a I think he has a more traumatizing story about him driving through the zombies and them like clawing their way like up his truck I think that's more traumatizing than she saw her brother thrown into a gravestone you know what I mean like I feel like and and Ben's holding it together pretty well he's the leader he's cool-headed unless somebody questions his authority I feel like I don't know I, I I feel like she's just she's not a weak character i feel like she's just a weak person and i don't i don't 
hold that against Romero. I don't hold that against the actress playing Barbara. I just think that somebody had to be that character. You know what I mean? And in every movie or TV show you watch, with like The Walking Dead, there's always that character that gets other people in trouble because of their ineptitude. You know what I mean? It had to be somebody because not everybody's going to be cool. You know, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, and this and this in this zombie future. Right. You know what I mean? Um, uh, so I think somebody had to do it, and she does a great job. And and I she does show some ingenuity. I feel like. Her flight from the zombies, where she goes from on foot to in a car to on foot again back into the the house, that shows that she really does want to survive, that she has some survival instinct. But for the rest of the movie, she kind of gets on my nerves when she's just staring blankly or whining over and over again. So I'm not too sad that she's kind of pushed around by Ben. Well, and it's interesting because when Judith O'Day was interviewed on the 40th anniversary thing, they it was great. They uh, shot... Um, Russ Steiner, Johnny, and Judith O'Day, they brought him back together and drove him out to the Evan City Cemetery and just had him talk. And Judith O'Day said that was not George Romero's choice. That was her choice. She wanted to play Barbara that way. Mm-hmm. She thought that was Barbara. And Judith O'Day was an aspiring actress. Um, she was from that area, from Pittsburgh, but she was a hippie who hitchhiked out to L.A. thinking she would be an actress. And she got out there and she got a phone call from a friend said, hey, they're casting a movie, they're shooting right here in Pittsburgh, and I've recommended you, they really want to see you. And so she hitchhiked back to Pittsburgh as quick <laughs> as she could to audition, and she got the role. And then she began to talk to George about the role, and that was her choice. She she said that she evolved Barbara. And, of course, Night of the Living Dead was not shot in a tight, like, two weeks. Or anything. It was shot, you know, well, we're out of money, we'll be back as soon as we can. And she said there'd be like a <laughs> month, and she'd get a call, okay, we're shooting again, and then they'd go, and she that was her choice that was judith mm-hmm. o'day's choice to play her that way yeah and i i respect that that there can just be a character that is that and it doesn't have to be about their gender it doesn't have to be about their character at like you know at large but um yeah I, somebody's got to do that job in every zombie movie not everybody's going to come out looking like rambo you know what i mean because this is reality i think this movie does this well with the characters are very grounded and down to earth they react exactly how I would picture people actually reacting to the zombie apocalypse. Um, and I do know people that would act that way. That would freeze up because that just that concept of you're in, in the cemetery with your brother. And then all of a sudden there's one zombie and then there's more. And then there's hundreds of them and there's thousands surrounding the farmhouse. You know what I mean? Like just that thought alone, these dead people coming back and attacking you, that would be enough to send anybody into shock. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, and we see that not just in zombie movies. You see that in horror movies and any kind of apocalypse. I mean, mm-hmm. whether it's maximum overdrive, you know, with the waitress running out of the, you know, <laughs> we made you and, you know, boom, 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 boom. See you later. Yeah, uh, yeah you get that over and over again. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I think we're in a culture where it's easy to criticize that. And you're right. I mean, it did not have to be a female character it could have been any character that that did that right i mean it's just right yeah that and you see that in a lot of movies and you get a large enough population yeah you're going to get somebody who freezes up you're going to get somebody who freaks out and that does happen i've as a pastor i've been in a lot of hospital rooms and hospice rooms and some people are cool as ice and other people are just uncontrollable i mean it's just that's just the way it works so Mm -hmm. i think you're right so 
moving from, do you anything else you want to talk about in the casting, the characters, the production? Uh, yeah, just while we're at the beginning of the movie, like, or kind of generally at the beginning of the movie, I want to talk about some piece of trivia that I heard on the commentary track I was listening to with uh, James from Cinemassacre, who said that in the cemetery scene when she's driving the car, you see it in the beginning and there's no, it's like a perfectly pristine car. Right. And it actually got wrecked with a big dent on the right. side. So they wrote it into the script that it crashes into the tree just so that they could like explain how it has a giant dent in it. Um, which is really funny that they shoot it from one side until it crashes. And then afterwards it's like, Oh, huge dent. You know what I mean? Um, I find that really funny that that's another thing that I love about this movie is when things came up, just put it in the movie. I don't know, you know, like yeah, that's in, that's independent filmmaking on the fly, right? Yeah, exactly. Where regular huge productions would be like, okay, well that happened. We'll just replace whatever it is. You know, that's their entire. If they were to buy a new car, that would be their entire budget, like right out the window. So they've got to they've got to work around it. And and whenever something bad happens, you know, shoot it. It's cool. It's a horror movie. So when things go wrong, just shoot it and put it in the movie. I love that style of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Romero is, if nothing, if inventive, and, you know, that's just because of limited budgets, that's what you have to do. And so um, let's talk about the movie itself. One of the things that struck me is that if you look at other horror movies of the 1970s, or 60s, mm -hmm. excuse me, um, most of them have a slow buildup. Right. You know, Psycho's been criticized for that. You know, the first 30 minutes are kind of kind of slow i obviously disagree because it's the greatest movie of all time um <laughs> uh, rosemary's baby has a slow build up to when things get creepy this had the horror starts pretty quick in this sure does first what six minutes that's when the first zombie appears yeah um you only have that for opening credit sequence and uh you know uh the brother starts teasing the sister and then there's a zombie you know right off the bat and that's something that i respect about all these movies Every single one of the dead movies starts off with a bang. You know, I've never, I've, um, I haven't seen Diary of the Dead or um, the last movie. What's that called? Survival of the Dead yet. Um, but from the four I have seen, it, it starts you off with a bang because it knows that that's what people want. They want the zombies right off the bat, and then they can use that to put in some themes and some psychological discussions, you know, because that's what the zombie movie does best. You know, how would these characters react? But realistically, what puts butts in seats is zombies killing people, and that's exactly what we get with Night of the Living Dead. All right. Right. Yeah. Romero does do that. And it, it is fun. I mean, I don't mind a slow burn, but it certainly works, works here. And, you know, so we get that, you know, uh, Barbara gets the farmhouse. Then we get Ben pulling up, um, fights off several zombies, uh, maybe gets a little cocky, Ben. Yeah. Do you think? Because he, he takes out, you know, those first few zombies so easily mm -hmm. that... Uh, you see where I'm going with this? Because eventually when people emerge from the basement, the irony is the jerk in the basement was always right. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was always interesting because it's framed in the beginning as if Ben knows everything and these people are just crazy, you know, don't listen to them. Ben knows what he's doing. But then by the end, where does Ben end up? You know, it's like he, after yeah. all that time of arguing, it turns out that even though the belligerent guy, you know, the, the guy that was totally seemed wrong and he was angry about it and you're, you're, you're like, oh, kill this guy already, you know, um, 
he was right. I mean, he may not have gone about it in the best way, you know, proving his point, but it is kind of funny. Yeah, I think that Ben gets a little cocky, but in the same way that, you know, Han Solo does, where it's like a, like a charming kind of, he's like, okay, I can do this now. And you're like, yeah, he can do it. And then you realize he's wrong and you're like, ah, it's fine. He thought he could do it. Um, yeah, you really root for Ben. I think that's that's one of the things that the dead movies do, especially well, uh, especially this movie, where you care about the characters. Um, whenever you watch a, a horror movie, usually, especially 60s horror movies and 50s, you're like, uh, whenever you see the creatures coming, you're like, oh, what's he gonna? What's what are they gonna do to these characters? But with Night of the Living Dead, I would be content if they just stayed in the farmhouse and survived because I really care about Ben. Maybe not so much Barbara, but um. I don't want anything bad to happen to him, which is why the ending crushes me, but we'll get to that. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, the characters in the farmhouse, I mean, really the only one, I understand what you're saying about Barbara, but, and of course, Harry Cooper is, he's a jackhole, but um, I, I kind of, I like the other, like Tom and Judy, I like them. Right. Uh, they get fried in the truck, but I, I do like them. It's, uh, George Romero said that they all thought the actor who played tom was going to be a huge star he was the one they thought he's going to be a big star he was already like a song and dance man he was already doing theater work you know and all that kind of stuff and he would ride to the set every day in like a convertible <clears throat> some girl driving him out in a convertible he'd sit in the back and be waving to everybody like he was running for mayor mm-hmm. um and you know unfortunately it didn't happen a number of these cast members died fairly young Dwayne Jones and, and the character who played Tom, but I do like Tom and Judy and I, I was heartbroken what happened, you know, to them. Um, I'm not sure what, again, Ben was thinking by having an open torch and uh, yeah. a rifle next to a gasoline pump, but yeah. so that was, you know, that was kind of, that was a little bit Ben's fault as well. Right. Well, I mean, realistically, when you're in that kind of situation, think about how many factors there are to consider when you're in that farmhouse. There's so many entrances to cover up and so many different contingency plans and so many different things to do. So when you think that you're close to, you know, somebody getting out to get help, like, you know, it's it's a rush. You know what I mean? You don't want to be stuck in that farmhouse any longer. Right. Um, so I don't know. I don't blame him too much for anything that he does in this movie. And I guess I'm, go- I'm being a little too harsh on Barbara, too. Because, yeah, this situation, this this reality would crush anybody. I think that as the movies go on, the characters are adapted to it more and more. And that kind of takes away a little bit of the the uh, suspense, I think, now that these characters are all fully equipped to, to, equipped to deal with zombies, like in uh, Day of the Dead, where they're, they're all, like, proficient in doing it. And especially Land of the Dead, where they have, like, what, this giant zombie-killing tank thing, and John Leguizamo right. has a, is taking out zombies left and right. Um but this movie, they're just totally helpless. So I don't blame any of the characters for the way they act. People are people, you know what I mean? When they're forced into a corner, they're going to bite. Yeah, yeah. I'm just pointing out, I think it's interesting that I like that Romero didn't back off. That, I, I, you know, I like Ben. He's charismatic. Dwayne Jones was a great, great actor. He's also great in a movie called Ganja and Hess, which is a slow burn kind of vampire movie. He's a fantastic actor. Um, but I like the fact that, okay, we've cast a black man and, and we're progressives. It's the sixties and, but they still let him screw up. They didn't mm-hmm. go back and like rewrite the script to fit their politics. Yeah. I don't like that with like movies like Shaft or whatever, where it's like, he's the coolest guy in town. He can do no wrong. I like characters that have flaws, but you love them for them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I really like that. Um, um, so we get, you know, through all that and then you have the news reports. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't live through the time I wasn't born until 72. So this was four years before I was even hatched. But, um, a lot of people have remarked from Roger Ebert to a number of critics how realistic the news reports were. And in fact, Romero used a lot of, you know, real local newscasters to do those. Mm-hmm. And I think it does add an air of authenticity to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the best line of the entire movie comes from those news reports where, are they slow moving, chief? Oh, yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. I yeah. love that line. And I hear that's improvised. I hear that a lot of the scenes with the like live newscasts are are improvised just because, you know, that's what would actually happen. If you had an anchor on set, they're not going to have pre-recorded, you know. Not uh, during a national emergency. Yeah, they're just right. rolling. Yeah. And uh, I love that. I love the the whole posse rolling out with guns in tow. Like that feels like what would actually happen in this situation. And and. Um, where a lot of the movie, you know, these are all theater actors, like Dwayne Jones is giving these huge monologues, and it's great, but it's very theater-like. And then you get to these people on the news, and it's like, oh, all right, so we're watching ABC News now. Like, this is this is exactly what it's like. Um, I think that's absolutely great. And uh, that is something that, especially that scene where um, Barbara, I think she's listening to the radio, and this uh, that slow cuts into her face, as she's listening, just with that dead look on her face, which I think is kind of interesting how she looks deader than most of the zombies. Um, but mm-hmm. that that was fantastic. I mean, it, it just it sends a chill down your spine, the fact that everyone's in apathetic shock, you know what I mean, that this is actually happening. Um, just great filmmaking. Absolutely. And you mentioned the police. So you've got, you've got the cops coming in. Uh, you've got these deputized mob that they, they announced the national guard is coming in mm-hmm. and the police and that, you know, the police are bringing in dogs to, with them and, and they start shooting these dead revolutionaries, um, which certainly invokes the riots in Detroit, sure. you mm-hmm. know, where the streets were filled with soldiers. So, you know, it, 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 we watch this now, the benefit of hindsight, but it would have been amazing uh, to have watched that, especially with a largely black audience. Like I said, if you watch Birth of the Living Dead, they have a number of African-American scholars on talking about how they saw Night of the Living Dead mm-hmm. with, an, with an all-African-American audience and how it resonated with them more than it did a white audience because they kind of got what was going on. Sure. Yeah, I, I think if you're not reading into it, just as a, a general audience member, oh, it's a movie about zombies. But if you're watching it, after going through these kinds of things, this is basically like watching, you know, like if you're a vet watching a war scene because you've experienced this kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's definitely horrifying. The people in this movie, well, intent, uh, they have good intentions, but the things they do, I think, perhaps in hindsight, you know, it's a little hard to watch. All right. And, the, you know, so you've got, you know, as we've talked about the ironic ending where the jerk was right about the basement. Yeah. Dwayne Jones emerges. He's mistaken for a zombie and shot. Oh, no. Um, is the film, is Romero saying, or maybe he wasn't trying to say, but can you interpret it this way? Is the film saying that he should have continued to hide because his fellow humans were just as dangerous? Yeah, 
I think it is saying that, and I think it's more intentional when you get to movies like Dawn or Day, that the humans are the actual villains, and that the zombies are just secondary. They're they're hazards, but the real villains are the humans. Um, definitely Day of the Dead. Um, I mean, the army men are just, you know, that's that's more terrifying than the zombies outside. The, the people actually use zombies as a tool to get rid of the, the evil humans. Um, and, um, yeah, definitely... In this world, lawlessness, it's, it's like the purge all the time. I mean, the zombies have given these criminals and people that were would otherwise be held down by society, it's given them a reason to rebel and to do all the things that they, they, would, they wouldn't do normally. Um, I think of the motorcycle gang in Dawn, and um, it's just like, those are the real, ha- if you'll recall, in Dawn of the Dead, they were doing just fine. I mean, the zombies were, like, contained, and everything was okay. They were fine until the motorcycle gang appeared, and then that's when things go mm-hmm. south. So, I think— Tom Savini had to screw up everything. Yeah, I know. He just had to get over that walkie-talkie and come with his whole brigade. Yep, that's hard to watch whenever you see them coming down the hill. But even in this movie, when the people are disagreeing and fighting, I mean, if they would all just— do one thing together and all cooperate on it. They would all still be alive. But instead we have disagreements and egos flaring and everybody thinks that they know what the best way to survive is. And that's still going on today with people talking about these movies. Oh, the best way to survive would be doing this. No, be doing this. Or the zombies come from here or from here. Like, that's not really the point of the movie. The point of the movie is that cooperation is key. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me back to something I forgot to bring up earlier. Now, Going back to watching this from the perspective of an African-American, this was filmed before the assassination of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but it was released six months after the assassination. Mm -hmm. So many people have, many black scholars have argued that when you watch, especially the, 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 the credits as they roll, where they're dragging Ben out of the farmhouse, and you see this entire white gang. They've got hooks. Mm -hmm. They've got guns. They've got dogs. And a lot of African-American scholars said, it looks like a lynching to me. And to do that, you know, for that to be released six months after the assassination of the Reverend Dr. King, that had to just really jar black audiences, don't you think? Yeah. Absolutely, and I hear they they were actually driving to take it to be edited. They were taking the film to be edited, driving in the car when they heard. That's got to be shocking, right? This movie we just shot yeah. with this George, ending. George Romero and Russ Steiner were driving to New York City with the final print when it came over the radio, yeah. That's just, it's awful. And watching that with that knowledge afterwards, I mean, when they were filming it, it was horrifying, I'm sure, to think about you know that, that narrative, but it wasn't as disturbing you know what I mean? This is just like a downer ending for them. But then when you add that context in, it's just it's it's disheartening. It's, it's um, I think when I was watching the movie, I wrote down some notes and my f- final statement was what harrowing final moments are these? And that was my final note on the movie. It's just so somber. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the very last shot is what Ben's body with a bunch of kindling, a bunch of old yep. furniture is being burned. Yep. It's just. It's terrifying, and it makes you think about the movie that you just watched. Like, what if you had known? 
that this was all going to go south so fast and that everybody was going to end up dead. I mean, what's the point of even following these characters? And that's the kind of nihilistic irony with this movie is that you're meant to care. You're meant to the, all these characters are given, you know, backstories, not much, but they have that theme where they talk about their past and what's going on and you're meant to care about them. But ultimately in, in, the, in the end, it's all for naught. You know what I mean? And I, I think this is, this is the saddest movie of the original trilogy. Um, Dawn is the most fun, and then Day is the most thought-provoking, I would say. Um, but well, this at least movie... in, you know, spoiler alert, but at least in those movies, there are survivors that we yeah. care about, that we've known. Yeah, definitely. Not here. This is a very, and just the fact that they treat Ben's body with such, like, disrespect and such, like, they don't care. They just think, and obviously his body is not that of a zombie. Like, he does not look like a zombie. They're like, whoop. Oh well, might as well burn him along with the zombies. Right. It's so terrible. And um I, I do and the fact that it's shot, um, I think it is shot with stills, right? It's it's photos. Like right. sort of like sort of like the beginning of Texas Chainsaw, where it's just those stills and it's just creepy and how st- and how you know, silent and like there's no motion. It's just you're you're left in this moment with this character that you've cared so much about dead and there's no hope. And then you get to the later movies and everything else. The while the world is descending, the survivors are ascending and trying to and like figuring out how to survive. So I think that's an interesting. Or where the world is at its most civilized, the characters are at their least civilized, and then it, you know, adversely it changes as it goes on. Um, right. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, you speak about the bleak ending. I mean, other movies had done it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, like, I Was a Fugitive from the Chain Gang from the 1930s. But this flick, I think, because of its power and, and because so many horror fans, John Carpenter was a huge fan of this movie. So many, Frank Darabont is a huge you know, fan of this movie. And I think it influenced everything from John Carpenter's The Thing mm-hmm. to the original The Vanishing, the European version, to The Mist. Mm-hmm. And... I think that whenever a movie does that, I think it takes stones, but I think Romero was really the one within horror who did it first. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. And this, again, revolutionary. This movie really is revolutionary. Absolutely. And so, you know, you move to post-production. They had so little money, they didn't have the cash for the sound mix. Mm -hmm. So Russ Steiner, the producer, who was also George Romero's business partner, also Johnny, um, yeah, he, here's what he did. He went to the, the, um, uh, company that was going to do the sound mix. He challenged the owner to a game of chess and oh bet on it and he won. So they got the sound mix for free because Russ Steiner beat him at chess. I just love that story. That's yeah. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And then, so as you said, they finally finish it, um, everybody i was i was funny i was listening to some of the cast and they were like when george and russ you know took off for new york with the final print in their trunk um the cast was like uh good luck because they were all thinking who's gonna buy this thing (laughs) (laughs) and so so they go they finally get it sold when they you know they go to new york they strike out Uh, i think columbia wanted it held it but then they wanted to reshoot the ending and romero and steiner said absolutely not Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually they get an agent and they get a distributing company. Uh, they agree to take it as is, but they wanted to change the title. 
and it had gone through several titles, Night of the Anubis, or I forget what it was called, or Night of the Ghouls, or Night of the Flesh Eaters. Oh, yeah. And nobody and, knew Night of the Anubis, because that's Anubis, the god of that's death. It. Yeah. Um, and nobody got the reference, so, okay, Night of the Living Dead, sure. Right. And so, and but when they took the print, they removed Night of the Flesh Eaters, they put on Night of the Living Dead, and they didn't put a copyright stamp Yep. Yep, oh, and now it's public domain. You can, or not anymore, actually, right? It's been it's been redeemed by. Well, Steiner's been in court for years trying to get the copyright office to acknowledge it because he said the screenplay was copyrighted. It mm-hmm. was sent. It was all that kind of stuff. He said so. Therefore, the movie should be. So he's been arguing that for years. And so, um, yeah, I I'd never, I've been trying. I you know, as a lawyer. I try to follow those cases like I've been trying to follow the Friday 13th case. I saw Sean Cunningham just responded to Victor Miller. But this is, I hope Russ Steiner gets full rights to it and the Romero estate does because they deserve it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they didn't make money off of it because it was a couple years before people realized it. Um, so they did make, uh, you know, the initial run and drive-ins and so forth. They made a little bit of money. Now, the distributors kind of screwed them and, and took too much. Right, but, I heard that, yeah. But they made nothing off the European run, nothing off video, you know, and, and that's that is such uh, my, you know, as a former, you know, wannabe filmmaker, as you as a wannabe, that's got to hurt. I mean, this is what you do to make a living, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is this is a lesson for you, my friend. Always make sure <laughs> that nothing goes out without you seeing it. One uh, and two. Uh, to follow that, always get a good copyright attorney. And to quote Dave Grohl of, uh, of course, formerly of Nirvana, now Foo Fighters, he has, he, I heard him once say, get a tax attorney, an accountant, and then get another accountant and another tax attorney to watch the first two. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, when it appeared, started in, in playing in drive-ins and grindhouse theaters, um, it, became, it was a hit. It was a, it was a box office hit. Critics initially hated it. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely hated it. Vincent Camby at the New York Times just yeah, pooped all over it. Roger Ebert wrote a thing for Reader's Digest basically saying it was immoral, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. But then it goes to Europe. The European mm-hmm. critics love it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. Caught the eye of one famous European man, Mr. Mm-hmm. Dario Argento, exactly. who would later later become of help with the 1978 release of another movie. Exactly. And Argento was a film critic at the time, I believe. Right. And yeah, he loved it. And all the European film critics. And then what happens when all of the reviews start pouring in from Europe, all of a sudden Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert loves the movie. Oh, what do you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Peer pressure. Exactly. And so did Rex Reed. They, they do this mea culpa, and all of a sudden it's, oh, it's a great movie. It's revolutionary. <laughs> when Ebert was pressed on that in later years, he was like, well, the first time I saw it, I just didn't get it. Yeah, I can yeah, see but... that. I mean, if you're going into it thinking this is a schlocky zombie movie, yeah. Um, but I think once he saw that other people were critically analyzing it, he went back into it and was like, oh, okay, so there is some merit to this movie. It's not just, you know, violence for the sake of violence. Well, yeah, and we've talked about it, right? I mean, Romero had a lot to say, and there's a lot there. Even if he didn't intend for the racial thing to be there, the revolutionary thing is there mm. with the 60s. Yeah, I mean, he's saying a lot. And I've always said this. Look, I, you know, I've, I've tried to kind of mask my 
politics. Um, I will tell you I'm neither a Republican or a Democrat, really. Um, but I, I will just say that, you know, I don't care what your politics are. If you present it well and you're not preachy, I'm on board. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'll, I'll hear you out. And so and I don't think Romero, especially in this film and Dawn of the Dead, and we'll talk about that. I don't think he's preachy at all. I think it's all subtext. I think it's handled well. I think it's handled brilliantly, really. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that the first three movies, I'm, Day is getting a little bit more preachy, but I would say that Land of the Dead is where it gets a little bit overboard with the talk about capitalism and the dangers of that. I feel like Land of the Dead is where it pushes it a little too much, and I haven't seen Diary of the Dead or Survival of the Dead, but I hear that there's a lot of really preachy themes in those two. But, um, yeah, it, you can when it, when it comes through a lot of exposition— Mm-hmm. Instead of the plot, I think right. that's where you risk becoming preachy. And I don't care if it's, you know, if it's some right wing movie or left wing movie. I just don't want to be preached at. I think I just heard Gilman Joel, either on Retro Movie Geek or Horror Movie Podcast, say that. And I agree with him. I don't want to be preached at. I don't care what your politics are. Don't give me a long exposition about this and that. I much more prefer what Jordan Peele did in Get Out and and so forth. That's why I prefer Get Out to Shape of Water. And I really liked Shape of Water. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, that one scene, we saw Shape of Water together. That one scene at like the uh, soda fountain. Yeah. Where the guy behind the soda fountain just goes overboard. I'm like, okay, this is crossing over into preachy territory. Of course, the guy behind the soda fountain is a jerk. We get that. But, you know, you don't have to go so overboard where I thought, what Jordan Peele did with race and get out was just perfect. And mm-hmm. I think George Romero here is doing the same thing. I mean, it's all it's you, you kind of have to search for it a little bit. And I like that. And I appreciate that. Right. I would agree. And I would say that the best kind of movies with themes are the ones that you have to really analyze to get the themes. Like you said, where you have to dig a little bit, like I was talking about earlier, I'm sure a lot of people wrote analysis essays on this movie and you don't really have to do that with movies that are more um, in the forefront with their themes because right. they're right there. That's what the whole movie's about. I think Shape of Water is more ambiguous than other movies because there is a little bit of subtext in that. But Oh, really I agree. It's... it's just that one scene that really right. bugged me. It's just that one scene. The rest yeah. of it, look, I was, I, was on, I was on board for. It's that one scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And I would say that reading into this movie, your appreciation grows for it more because when you've watched it the first time, it's like, wow, this is inspiring because it's low budget filmmaking at its finest. These people wanted to make a movie. They didn't really know if it was ever going to get finished, but they just wanted to go out and shoot something. So they did it. And that's inspiring to me. I mean, he never really loses that. Um, even with Land of the Dead, which is huge budget, he never really loses that um, feel of do-it-yourself filmmaking. But um, with other movies, you know, you can tell that a lot of this is a studio. You know, let's let's give some meaning to this. Let's 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 infuse these characters with something that that will appeal to more of our audience members. And that's not what Romero was trying to do at all. He was trying to create create characters that everyone could like, not just that would bring in one you know, minority to watch the movie. Like, that's that's how business people think. They think, okay, if we have this character in here, then that's going to get this minority in here, and we have this character. We represent people in this movie. People are going to come and buy a ticket. Shoehorning, yeah, what we right. do today and have for a long time, which is shoehorning yep. diversity, which you can see. You can Absolutely. tell. And you, they do that with sitcoms. They do that, that with everything. That, that is not what Romero was trying to do. He was trying to make characters that you cared about, characters that could spark up interesting discussions, and that was the point of having 
all these different like types of characters and i i like that a lot i think this movie is inspiring the writers especially writers i mean filmmakers yeah but writers i mean this is just a movie that was spawned by a concept um just little images and bits and that that spawned this whole series and this whole iconic image of a zombie which has become such a huge thing with The Walking Dead. I mean, in the early 2000s, it was zombie movies, zombie movies, zombie movies, and it got worse and worse and worse, you know, direct-to-DVD releases, and you're like, ugh. And then The Walking Dead comes along and reinvigorates the zombie genre, and then we get a spree of really good zombie movies after that. I mean, we talked about 28 Days Later in an episode that probably will never come to... Uh... No, that thing's too gnarly. We, we apologize to Dino and Michelle for that, but it just got too mixed up. But one of these days when you're on break and record during the week, we will have them back on. Hopefully, hopefully they will will come back on because they are wonderful people. Oh, yeah, definitely. But basically, just to finish up what I'm saying, yeah, this is this movie is not in your face. It isn't uh, so obvious that anybody could just sit down and from a first view and get all the meaning behind it, um, because then what's the fun? You know, you can't really rewatch a movie that gives you everything the first time you watch it. Um this is a movie that you have to rewatch it. You have to pay attention to the choices that were made. You have to acknowledge the flaws, too. This isn't a perfect movie, technically. I mean, there are a lot of things that were born out of necessity that were that the filmmakers wish they could have done better. Um, oh, yeah. I love Romero talking about, well, it was actually in the 40th anniversary. The guy who plays the first zombie, mm-hmm. who again, who pops up again at the end, you know, when the when the kind of uh, walls fall down, right. Ben's walls fall down. Um, that guy, you know, as far as it back in 2009 when they shot, he was still alive. And he talked about how George Romero was the one in the seat. So when he's taking the rock and he's banging it against the window. Yeah. And Romero's sitting there, see, he thought he could hit it once and it would just bust. Mm-hmm. And he had to hit it several times. And one time he hit it, bounced off. He had to go yep. back, run and grab the rock run back over again, finally hit it so hard, he busted, he lost control of the rock. And, and it went hit, inside the car. Well, it hit George Romero. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that's the thing, like you were talking about with the fire stunt earlier, this movie is very much uh, safety. Um, well, we can't really afford safety. I'm sure if we get the shot, it'll all be worth it. And I admire that. I admire, I admire the heck out of that. I was watching American Movie. Um, the other day, which is a great little documentary about these low-budget filmmakers. And they were filming a scene where this guy's head is supposed to go through a cabinet. And they they supposedly saw the, the board so that when he put his head through the cabinet, it would break. But they did take after take after take where they're just ramming his head into this wood. And it was not breaking. Um, and that's very <laughs> much like what was happening on Night of the Living Dead. They're like, it doesn't matter about safety. When you see the final product, it will all be worth it. And kind of, it was. Maybe not for the actors, because I hear that Dwayne Jones, Dwayne Jones, he never watched the other Living Dead movies. Is that no? Oh, he was. Yeah, he was. He was interviewed. Said he never saw another one of them. He saw this one, and he never saw another one of the dead movies. Yeah, just wasn't. And he was a classically trained actor. He was an actor. It just this wasn't his bag. Yeah, I guess. But wouldn't you be interested to see what your role spawned in these later movies with these strong protagonists? I mean, I don't know. Different. He 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 lives by. He lived by the code that kind of Tony Todd lives by because Tony Todd also is primarily a theater actor. Sure. You know, uh, Tony Todd made the statement that um, movies buy the house, television decorates the house, theater is what you live for. 
Sure. And I think I think Dwayne Jones was the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can respect that. But uh, yeah, I mean, this was definitely probably I would say one of the most iconic movies in the horror genre of all time. I think it's this Absolutely. Halloween. This spawned a zombie genre. The creatures, uh, you know, coming out and eating people. That's that's a whole genre in itself. And then Halloween spawned the slasher genre, or you could argue that Black Christmas did it before that, and a bunch of Bob. Well, but Black Christmas, you know, did it before, but it didn't. It didn't have the success Halloween did, and that's sure. why it spawned the slasher genre. That's why I'm yeah. saying, like, yeah, I mean, there were movies about ghouls before, but this is the movie that that kicked it off mm-hmm. because yeah. of success and introduced the new rules. You know, shoot him in the head, destruction of the head, the brain is what ultimately kills them. Fire repels them. Um, they resurrect when they die, you know, a bite can kill them and, and bring them back as zombies. That all stemmed from this movie. It was elaborated upon further in Dawn of the Dead and then later in Day of the Dead. Um, but this is a hugely influential movie. And when you watch it, you're like, wow, you would not expect this little movie out of out of Pittsburgh to rise to the heights of fame that it did. But when you but when you watch it with that in mind, the fact that this is the most one of the most influential movies for the genre, you're like, I can see it. I can see why this would resonate with so many filmmakers and lead them to create classics that we all look back on now with fond memories because this is that movie for so many people. This is the movie where they look back on it and they're like, this was what caused me to become a filmmaker. And I think that's really great. Yeah, especially independent, inspired so many independent filmmakers. And sure. so what else do you want to talk about Night of the Living Dead? Um, I just, man, this movie, like when you watch it and you're looking for flaws, you can find so many. And I think that's true about all classic sure. movies. When, you, when, you're, when you're watching it, you're like, oh, okay, well, I see a boom mic there. And oh, there's a shadow of a crew member there. And, and this shot could have been better. And their eye lines don't match up, you know. Um, but. None of that matters when the narrative is so strong, the ingenuity is so strong, the way they went about doing things was so strong. I mean, they shot this in black and white for because it's cheaper, but it mm-hmm. turns out that if it was in color, I've seen colorized versions of this movie, and it, it's not affecting in the sa- effective in the same way that the black and white version is. Because, no, I agree. Like that stabbing scene. Um, with a with a girl killing her mother with with a bricklaying trowel, I guess, and just right. a that's so terrifying in those close black and white shots. And when you watch that in color, it's just not as effective because that's what you're used to. That is what this movie became iconic for is the fact that you don't need, you know, and same with psycho. You don't need to be an exciting color splatter film, like a hammer movie. And I love hammer, but you don't need that exciting blood and boobs. You don't need that to be a classic movie that so many people can appreciate. This is this is very much about the story. It's very much about the the ingenuity of the kills and everything. And I really appreciate it for that. Absolutely. So what do you rate Night of the Living Dead? I would rate this a nine out of ten. It isn't a perfect movie, but it spawned one of my favorite horror series of all time. I'm going higher than that. This is on my honorable mentions. Um, This is not in my top ten, but it's in my honorable mentions in the next ten. It's a ten out of ten for me. I say you should buy it. Do you say buy it? I would say buy it. Yeah, definitely. And it's on Amazon, right? I don't know if it's still on Prime, but it's definitely for It is on. The 50th anniversary is on Prime. Okay, Um, cool. I had it on the background while we were doing this. So, But I would say buy it. I just ordered the Criterion uh, disc. I I, I bought the Criterion collection when it dropped with, like, the book and the— 
and the poster and all kind of stuff. And a month later, they sent me a thing. Oh, sorry, we sold out after I'd already paid for it. Right. But they refunded it. Now the Criterion disc is down to about 14 bucks on Amazon, so I bought it. Uh, look forward to getting that this week and watching it even again. So, folks, we have plans, Jackson and I, to head to Pittsburgh uh, next time he's on <laughs> break to see a few filming locales. Um, and hopefully this will be one of them. We'll head up to the Evans Cemetery. And the farmhouse, of course, is no longer there. And the uh, the basement is still there because the basement was never in the farmhouse. That was actually <laughs> in George Romero's office building yep. basement. <laughs> Which I could not believe when I heard that, that this was filmed all over the place. And the same is true with Dawn of the Dead. I was watching the commentary with George, uh, George Romero and Tom Savinian. Uh, they were like, oh, now we, when he pops up through the elevator, that's in our offices. And then when he comes back down into the elevator, that's in the mall. That's so funny to me that it's like you would never think about that. But when he sticks his head through the thing, you know, he's in a completely different location than when he walks down the ladder. Um, just great stuff all over, especially like this movie. You would never you can never tell because it's in black and white and it all kind of looks the same. Right. But again, what was born that? out of necessity. There's one scene shot outside the Pittsburgh area. Do you remember what it was? Uh let me see. Let me think about it. Maybe the scene with the newscasters? I don't know. We're, in D.C. If you remember, they're interviewing a government official in D.C. That's and right. The, the interviewer is George Romero. And what and they did actual, was... The actual White House, and they did not have permission to be filming there? No, they had no permits. What they did was they took two cars, uh, George and, and uh, Russ Steiner and John Russo and a couple others. They drove down to D.C. before they pulled into D.C., they put a couple American flags on the cars to make them look official. And then they pulled up in the street, pulled out the cameras and microphones. George Romero played the interviewer. They got a guy to play the uh, like Pentagon official. And they shot that in D.C. in like 30 minutes and then turned around, drove right back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that these days with the security, the like crackdown? Oh, no, after 9-11, you couldn't do that. You would never be able to get within 500 feet with a camera. I mean, no. No. Especially with a bunch of people in suits and cars, like, no. And, and that, that that's crazy to me. All the stuff they were able to do pre-union, pre-code, you know, all that, that kind of stuff is just great. Well, God willing, we will continue working through Romero's Dead Films next week with Dawn of the Dead, so be sure to check back. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate it. We appreciate a five-star review. Speaking of which, we have a few little trinkets to give away. Mm -hmm. I brought a few things uh, from my trip to Camp Crystal Lake, and we will give that away now. I had Jackson pick numbers at random and then selected from reviews on iTunes, Twitter, and other platforms like Stitcher. That's how we selected. Our first um, winner will get a Crystal Lake Tour Tumblr. So we go to iTunes for that, and his name on iTunes is The Other, but he signed it Shane. I wonder if that's Shane the Maniac. So <laughs> The Other, Shane, if you're out there, send me a message on Twitter or send us an email, and I'll get that out to you. And then the second one we have is a, um, a Crystal Lake Tour notepad and a Crystal Lake Tour pen. And you selected the numbers, and it goes to our good buddy, Greg Bench. Nice. It's that one, so... Gents, send us an email or DM me, uh, DM me sorry, on Twitter. I'll get those out to you. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Jackson, where can they find you on the socials? Well, on Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. On Letterboxd, I'm at Kane Hero. And I have a YouTube channel, which is linked in the bio of both of those. 
All right. Okay. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Pastor Matt R. You can find Father and Son Watch Horror movies at our website, fatherandsonwatchhorror.com, where we occasionally blog, where I just made my argument that, yes, Silence of the Lambs and other kind of movies, <laughs> in my opinion, are horror movies. Great article. Don't, don't, you know, if you don't, if you disagree, that's fine, but just don't trash us horror movie fans who like <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's all right. Doesn't mean we're not horror movie fans. Um, we can, you know, we can agree to disagree. Can't we all just get along? So uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Father and Son Horror. And we have a closed Facebook group that if you send me a friend request, Matthew Rawlings, then I will add you to that group if you can. And a YouTube uh, channel now. And now, that's right, you did the YouTube channel. So that's awesome. Thank you for doing that. And also, thank you, as always, for our music, Jackson, that we <laughs> intro and outro to. You wrote and performed that. So say goodbye to the good people, Jackson. Goodbye. And remember, board up your windows, lock yourself in the cellar, and whatever you do, don't stand in front of any open windows because rednecks with guns will shoot you if you do. <laughs> Could very well be. So goodbye for now, folks. And remember that the family that watches horror movies together stays together.